Well, we come this morning to Psalm 2 in our summer series going through the Psalms. And Psalm 2 is twice as long as Psalm 1. So I figure I can preach twice as long as I did last week on Psalm 1. I don't know why it is preachers like to make jokes about the length of their sermons. I think it's because it makes you uncomfortable. And you go, oh my goodness, is he actually going to do that? And we kind of get a kick out of that. So anyways, no more jokes about the sermons. At any rate, we come to Psalm 2 this morning. And Psalm 2 is what's known as a royal psalm. The psalms are kind of, you can kind of categorize them. And as we go through, we're going to bump up against many different categories. Psalms of celebration, psalms of lament, imprecatory psalms where David's praying judgment on his enemies and also royal psalms which have to do with royalty, (laughs) kings, coronation, that kind of thing. And so we're going to see that the language of these royal psalms, and Psalm 2 especially, find their fulfillment not only in the earthly kings, in the line of Davidic kings, but in Jesus Christ, the coming and promised Messiah. But before we jump to the fulfillment, I think it's really important for us to see this psalm in particular in its original context. So we might read the psalm and think, well, yes, of course, this is referring to Jesus because we're on this side of the cross. We recognize the language of God the Father and his anointed and his son, and we we put those things together sometimes, but... When we see things in the original context, as the first readers would have, I think when we get to the fulfillment, when we jump to the New Testament and see how Jesus Christ is the focus of this, then the meaning will be more rich and sweet to us. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Psalm 2 twice. I mean, it's Psalm 2, we have to look twice, right? So the first time is going to be original context. And we're going to go through and make some notes about what the original readers would have done with this psalm. Second time through, we're going to go to the New Testament and see how did the New Testament writers interpret this psalm. How did they apply this? So we have our work cut out for us this morning. But before we do that, let's turn to Psalm 2 if you haven't already done so. We'll read this together and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time and then we'll begin our walk through. So Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings... Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. 
Father, I am so thankful this morning for the way that you care for your creation. We're thankful, Lord, for the rain that you send and water the earth in due season. But more than just the preservation of our world, Lord, the rain gives us a picture. You spoke through your prophet Isaiah and said, Just as the rain falls and waters the earth and does what it's supposed to do, so my word will not go forth in vain, but will accomplish everything I have purposed for it to do. And so, Father, this morning, we come with dry hearts that need the rain of your word. And I pray that it would fall on soft soil. That we would be open and receptive, Lord. Don't let any of us, myself included, leave here unchanged. But let us leave with the knowledge of your word that you have imparted to us this morning. Through the preaching of your word, but mostly through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, come. Be present among us. And do what only you can do in applying these words to our hearts. And I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this psalm, Psalm 2, is nicely broken up into four sections of three verses. And that's how I'm going to take it this morning. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. Now remember, this is the original context we're going through this first time. So this is a picture in verses 1 through 3 of these nations that surrounded Israel and Judah plotting and scheming to overthrow God's rule and his authority that he had established through his people. Okay? If you read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, the book of Chronicles, we know this to be very much true. There was always some kind of conflict. Now David, towards the end of his reign, and Solomon did experience times of peace, But largely, the nation of Israel and their history has been marked by repeated and constant conflict. There was always a nation or a people who were insistent upon challenging the power and the authority of God by challenging the power and the authority of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. good example of this would be the Philistines, the nation of Philistia. They were always raiding and sending things before they were finally conquered. Do you remember David and Goliath? How Goliath was taunting the nation of Israel and mocking their God. Or how many times do we read through those books I just mentioned and see this alliance of nations that are coming against Israel, the Amalekites and the Assyrians. They come together to join this force against them. But Psalm tells us that this plotting, this scheming is in vain. It is of no consequence. These men, these nations get together and say, why should we be in subjection to this God? We don't even know who he is. Let's cast away these requirements. We don't, get it off me, I don't want this. The word plot in Psalm 2, I thought this was really interesting, is the same Hebrew word translated meditate in Psalm 1. That's what makes original language stuff tricky because you can have the same word that gets translated a bunch of different ways. So just as in Psalm 1, the righteous man is to meditate, to be absorbed with the law of the Lord. So here in Psalm 2, we see that these nations, these rulers, these peoples are absorbed. They meditate on ways to try to frustrate the plans of God, but it is to no avail. 
Now, what are these bonds that the nations are trying to cast off, right? It says in verse 2, let's, or in verse 4, let's cast off these bonds. Let's get rid of this oppression. We remember last week when we looked at Psalm 19 and we saw that everything that the law of God is and everything that it includes, his law is perfect, his testimonies are sure, his precepts are right, his commandment is pure, his rules are true. This is the so-called restrictive life that these nations are trying to throw off and get rid of. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live. And don't you dare tell me that there's some kind of standard outside of myself that I need to put myself under. That's the general attitude of these nations surrounding Israel. No, these nations hate the law of God and are continually trying to buck against it and get rid of it once and for all. And my, my, how things have not changed, have they? Another question might be to ask, what is God's purpose in the world? What's God doing? I mean, what, what really is it that these people are so set against? I think the purpose of God hasn't changed from 3,000 years ago when this psalm was written to the present day. God's purpose in the world is that all nations, <coughs> peoples, Languages, tribes, we can use that same thing, right? That everyone knows his power, his authority, which here in Psalm 2 is mediated by these Davidic kings, which is why people are going after them. So how can people set themselves against the Lord? He's in the heavens. How do you set yourselves against the Lord? Well, you do this by going after his representatives, You go after the one who's been anointed by God to carry out his will and his purpose. So the hostility against Israel is not just political. Okay, it's not just about uh, land acquisition or the right to water your flocks at a certain place. It is an attack on God himself when these nations gather together. Now verses 4 through 6 tell us the response of God to this kind of attitude, this kind of pride that exists in the nations, the response of God to the plans and schemes of men, <coughs> excuse me, is laughter and derision. Now, we don't use the word derision much. I think we should bring it back. I'm going to start a campaign for that. But the word derision means to hold in contempt, to mock. We don't usually think of God as someone who mocks, do we? When God considers the plans of men, when he looks at the schemes that they are trying to come up with, they are so inconsequential to the overall plan and purpose of God that he laughs. It's like when your four-year-old tells you, I think I'm going to be the one to make the decisions in the house. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll see how that goes. That's kind of God's disposition. It's like, well, that's cute, but it's not going to change anything. He is God. The nations are not. That's one thing we need to remember. Now I think verses 5 through 6 are very interesting. Listen to verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, and then we might expect some kind of a sweeping judgment statement, some kind of a hard-hitting, you're going against me, you're going to get it, I'm going to punish you, whatever. But what does he say? What does Almighty God say to terrify the nations? Verse 6. 
Verse 6, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Why is this terrifying news? Why is the announcement that God has a king enough to terrify the nations? You ever think about that? Because the king, the anointed one, the one chosen by God, is God's representative on earth of his power and authority and his majesty and his justice. And the king will carry that out as far as God wants him to. This anointed one carries out God's plans, his will on earth. And with God as his strength, with God as his guide, with God blessing the work of his hands, he will terrify the enemies of the Lord. Not because he is the authority, this is something we really need to see, but because he is the representative of true authority which only comes from God. Now, Verses 7 through 9, the speaker changes. Okay, do you notice this? In sections 1, 2, and 4, these three verse sections, it's the narrator, a third party kind of telling us what's going on. And then when we get to verses 7 through 9, we hear from this king himself. Let's read this again so you can see what I mean. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, of course, when we move to the New Testament, we're going to make some connections and see this son language is very significant. But for the immediate context, I think we should read this more in light of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, you can either turn there with me or just write this down and look at it later. But God is making a covenant with David through the prophet Nathan. And he is promising him things that are going to happen in his line. So listen as I read 2 Samuel chapter 7 and I'm going to start in verse 12. This is God speaking now through Nathan. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him the father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne shall be established forever. This is how this psalm would have been interpreted by the original readers. As the blessing that God has promised to, call the, to have such a relationship with the king that he calls him his son. Now we don't know if it was David who wrote this second psalm. But we know that it was speaking of the line of Davidic kings, the line of David as it moves down. And the relationship we see here between God and the king is is one of love and care. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance. These nations who have taunted God, who have 
gathered together to devise ways to throw off God's authority will one day be the reward and the possession of the king. Isn't there irony in God's plans? The the very people who just strive so hard against him are going to be the reward of the king. And of course, we know that this happens in part by the gospel going forward and people turning from this wickedness and coming to Christ and becoming children of God. It is his reward. What a magnificent plan that God has. Now, David certainly saw some of this. He conquered nations. He subdued peoples. But again, we need to remember that he was just a representation of God's power and authority. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think in this context, this verse has more to do with the fragility of the nations than anything else. All of these nations want to appear tough, strong, aggressive, and yet they will be broken as easy as a piece of pottery that's dropped or struck with a rod. They are not as strong as they think they are, which is why the warning comes at the end of the chapter. Wise up. You're not as good as you think you are. We'll get there in a minute. Don't forget what we saw last week either. Remember we saw the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked in Psalm 1. I think what we see here with this dashing to pieces, this judgment, is simply the end of the way of the wicked that we saw in chapter 1. Now, verses 10 through 12 switch back to the narrator's voice, and we hear this warning and a promise. The warning is clear. Pay attention. Wise up. Recognize the position you are in and respond accordingly. The reason that the Bible tells us that the plans of men are futile is because they are. And why spend your time doing something that is going to be of no consequence? The warning to these rulers and these kings is, you know what, instead of this continual scheming, which is getting you nowhere, kiss the sun. Which, of course, is a sign of submission. The promise, then, of course, is found in the last phrase of the chapter. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Remember the blessed man from last Sunday from Psalm 1? If you would be blessed, he's telling these nations, you will not join up. You will not partake in this wickedness. Instead, serve the Lord. Find refuge and protection in the safety of the king. Now, I want you to imagine that you live in Israel or Judah, around mid-700s B.C., okay? You have the Psalter. This is the the book of Psalms. is known as the Psalter. It was what the Israelites used for worship, for instruction, for remembrance. Think of all the Psalms that go back and recount the mighty works of God, all the way from creation and the Exodus and on through. So it was educational. It was for worship. You have this Psalm book, And you and your family use it for worship. You look at it to see how to interpret things that are going on in your context. Now, all of a sudden, mid-700s, here comes Assyria. And the nation of Israel is led into captivity. 
You manage to bring a few things with you and you bring this Psalter. You bring the book of Psalms. But now when you read it, things are going to look a little bit different, aren't they? No longer would you read Psalm 2 and relate it to David and Solomon and the line of, there is no kings anymore. You're under somebody else's authority. You're under somebody else's rule. It was at this point, historically, that the nation of Israel started to view Psalms differently. It was not as much the immediate context because the immediate context didn't make sense anymore. But they began to look with eyes of faith beyond their immediate circumstances and look for the fulfillment of these Psalms not in the earthly line of kings, not in David and Solomon and all of the people that followed after them, but in the promised coming Messiah whom they were looking for. And that is what gave them hope as they went through this captivity, both with Assyria and a couple hundred years later with Babylon. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at this psalm again, not in its immediate context, but in its messianic context. That simply means referring to the Messiah. Messianic means about the Messiah. How does Jesus, whom we know to be the Messiah, the anointed one, how does he fulfill this psalm? And as we look at this, I want to take a couple New Testament texts to reinforce that reading. And I would just say here that to read this psalm two different ways is not a contradiction. Okay, it's not like you have to pick one or the other and say, well, this is, this is the one I'm going to go with. Especially with Old Testament texts, especially with the psalms, there is two meanings, two interpretations, not contradictory to one another. We saw how the people would have seen this in the context, and now, this side of the cross, we are going to see how the New Testament writers interpreted this psalm, and it is not contradictory. If you have questions about that, I would love to talk about that with you. But let's start by reading verses 1 through 3 again. We'll just get this in our context. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Reading this with an eye to the future, or for us in the past, This anointed one is no longer just a human king in the Davidic line, but the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Just as in Israel, when the nations that surrounded them were trying to resist the authority of God, as was represented through the earthly kings, so now we see entire nations make decisions, write policies, pass legislation that is directly opposed to God. And don't fool yourself that it's simply incidental. It is intentional on their part to cast off any kind of requirement. Largely the bonds that they want to burst is anything that would restrict a certain way of living. Don't we see that? Don't we see that all around us? That don't Tell me what to do. Nobody wants to be under authority. It's human nature. Nobody welcomes authority. 
The wicked don't enjoy being in submission to God. In fact, they continually try to find ways to go against God and against the things that he has given to us for our good. This is reminding me of what Paul said at the end of Romans chapter 1. He's just gone through this litany of the different behaviors and sinful actions of people. And he says this in Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give hearty approval to those who participate. And that's what's going on. These people, these nations, these groups that go against God. It's not just that they do, it's that they try to gather everybody else into their wickedness. This is what we saw last week in Psalm 1. And the warning to not get involved with that. Stay away from that. (coughs) Excuse me. We need to remember that political upheaval, riots, wickedness, laws that are passed that go against the Christian values, All of these are not attacks on us personally. Don't over-personalize the Bible. They are attacks on God himself, and it is the world's way of saying, we will not submit to anyone. And in their rebellion, they act this way. These are the people we are being warned against in Psalm 2. God's response... It's the same as it has always been. Verse 3, or 4, I'm sorry. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them literally in contempt. Do you think that God is thrown off by what's going on in our world right now? Do you think he's frantically trying to reformulate a plan because, oh my goodness, the wrong person got into office. I don't know what to do anymore. This, per- this shouldn't happen. What- what's going on? No. No. Emphatically, no. God is never thrown off. He is never caught off guard. He is totally in control of this world. He is totally aware of everything that is going on and he is not worried in the least and neither should we be. As his children. I know it's tumultuous. I know it is concerning. I know it produces anxiety in some of us. Do not fear. God is in control. He is seated in the heavens. He is not pacing the floor. What a comfort to us as believers. If God were shaken by world events, if he was thrown off his course By what we do, he wouldn't be God. But aren't you thankful this morning for Psalm 115? Just in case you haven't memorized that, let me read you something. Verse 2. Why should the nations say, where is their God? In other words, why why should people look at us and say, I don't see anything different. What's what's going on? Where is their God? Verse 3. Our God is in the heavens He does all he pleases. What a comfort for us. God has not abandoned us. He is not unaware of what's going on. He does everything that brings him happiness. And although from our perspective it often looks confusing, it often looks frustrating, God is not confused and God is not frustrated and he never will be because he is God. 
So, to the degree that when these tiny, puny nations start rattling their swords and kind of gathering together and you can see there's something coming, God laughs at the absurdity of the thought that some earthly nation could throw him off his plan. Why does he do this? Why does he laugh? Because he has a king. He has a Messiah who came to earth, defeated the greatest enemies of sin and death, and one day this king will return, not to deal with sin. He dealt with that on the cross. He is coming to rescue his bride, the church, and deal the fatal blow of judgment on all those who have not turned to Jesus, but continually go against him. That's why Christ is coming back. Do you have a category for that kind of Jesus? He's not coming as gentle Jesus with a lamb on his shoulder. He is coming with a sword. And everyone opposed to him will bow. And worse. This is not just a chance for us to point our finger and say, look at those icky nations. This is a chance for us to repent of our sin against God. Kiss the son and beg him for his mercy, which he promises to give. Now verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now here's where things get explicitly messianic. And I want to take you to two New Testament texts that quote this psalm to help us see, again, that there is another way to read this. There is another way to see Jesus in this text. First one would be Luke chapter 3. This is the baptism of Jesus. should be familiar to us. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized by John the Baptist, and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The literal rendition would be, Today I have begotten you. This is a quotation from Psalm 2. Here we have the voice of God the Father applying the text of Psalm 2 directly to his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Next we go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Now the entire book of Hebrews is an explanation of how Jesus Christ is better Better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the old covenant system. His sacrifice is more complete. His priestly ministry is more secure. Everything. And in chapter 1, the author includes this litany of Old Testament citations to help us understand this. And in verse 5 of Hebrews 1, he quotes Psalm 2. And he says this. He's, He's making a comparison between Jesus and the angels, right? Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Well, the point is that he didn't say that to any of the angels, right? He said it to his son. 
He said it in Psalm 2. He said it at the baptism of Jesus. And he said it here in Hebrews 1. Even without <clears throat> these explicit New Testament citations, and I mean, we could, we could, I could preach a whole sermon on how the fulfillment is clearly seen from Old Testament to New Testament, but I'm only going to give you a couple. But even without these citations, we should be able to read Psalm 2 and clearly see Jesus there. Now let's look at the last set of verses, verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now comes the warning. Same as it was before. Wise up. Wise up. Don't kick and struggle against the authority and the power of God as we see it in the rule of Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jesus is reigning now? That he will reign in the future? That he is our everlasting king? That he fulfills what God told David? That the line of your throne will be an everlasting kingdom. That's because Jesus came in the line of David, fulfilled all of those things, and he is, at this moment, ruling and reigning. Hallelujah. When he says, kiss the Son, this is submission, not just to an earthly king now, but to our King of kings, Jesus Christ, and his absolute lordship over everything he has created. The wonderful thing about submitting to the Lordship of Christ is that when we do, we find refuge. <laughs> we find strength and comfort and protection. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Now, it can be very easy for us to read a text like this, to read this psalm and say, yeah, those rotten nations, they're always going against God. I hope God strikes them down. I hope he breaks them with that iron rod he was talking about. Get them. But let me close by asking us this. Have we totally submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ? It's easy to look at other people. It's easy to look at the blatant, obvious, going against God and say, oh, there's the Psalm 2 nations right there. But what about you? Are there areas of your life that you are still holding on to, that you have not given up, that you have not submitted to the lordship and the authority of your King, Jesus Christ? My encouragement to us, this is myself this morning and to you, don't wait any longer. Don't, don't wait to get things right with God. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Rather, be the blessed one who takes refuge in Jesus Christ as your King. He is the only safety from the coming judgment. Find yourself in Him. The psalm is a warning and an encouragement.
So let's take it as both this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we find here. I pray that we would not leave here just going, oh, that's good, I know a little bit more, or yep, I've heard that before. But Lord, help us to go from here in awe of you, that you put up with these nations, rattling their swords against you. How patient you are with us. And Father, convict each of us of the areas that we need to submit to the lordship of your anointed, your chosen one, Jesus Christ. Bring us into subjection to him, Lord. It is the only place for us to be. And would you do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.